Six Nations and six amazing chances to win an unforgettable adventure for you and five mates in a Six Nations European host city of your choice. To take part, enter online now at greenking.co.uk slash rugby. Six Nations, six mates and six international rugby getaways worth £3,000. Scrum down and sign up to win at greenking.co.uk slash rugby and watch all the Six Nations action live at your local Green King pub. Terms and conditions apply 18 plus drinkaware.co.uk. Hi, it's Alfie here, the presenter of The Ruck. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to tell you about Funding Circle. Funding Circle backs small and medium UK businesses with simple, competitive business finance. They've supported over 90,000 British businesses with £12 billion in finance since 2010. So if you're looking to overcome challenges or push your business forward, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. And for that reason, they've teamed up with Saracens and England hooker Jamie George. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how Jamie is growing his business backed by Funding Circle. Funding Circle, business finance that backs you. Welcome to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. My name is Alan Dimmick and in today's special bonus episode... We focus on the United States of America. I mean, that is an abomination from our point of view. This is a personal opinion. You're not going to sell me on a commercial story. I'm not sure that that does anybody any good. I know that I'm going to be at the 2031 World Cup. I'm going to be involved in it in some way, some shape and form. I got nine years to kind of figure that out, to find my way to get a free ticket. If we could make rugby a high school sport, we would have a million boys and girls playing the sport at the high school level in two, three years. Beyond belief exciting, it's full of potential. we just got to exploit it fully. It's either having regional pools. We've also looked at almost moving the tournament around the country. You almost create these huge hubs with everything going on in one slightly bigger area, but not nationwide to start with and drive it. The USA has been confirmed as the host for the 2031 Men's Rugby World Cup and the 2033 Women's Rugby World Cup. Often viewed as a sleeping giant and a country with huge commercial possibilities for the sport, today we take a deep dive into the State of the Union, literally. What is the current rugby union landscape in the United States? And what does hosting the Rugby World Cup mean? We're going to hear from Ross Young, the CEO of USA Rugby, Gary Gold, the head coach of the USA men's team, and Kate Zachary, who plays for the women's side. They give us a fascinating insight into the international teams and the challenges and opportunities facing the governing body. We also speak to Steve Lewis, director of rugby at Rugby New York, Jack Clark at Berkeley University, plus former England captain Chris Robshaw and Ryan Matthias, who both play for San Diego Legion in Major League Rugby. They all open a window onto the growing domestic game. So the Rugby World Cup is heading stateside, but what exactly does it all mean? Let's start at the very top. The USA will host two Rugby World Cups, but what was their pitch to World Rugby? What's the selling point? Particularly given that USA Rugby were in such a perilous financial position as recently as 2018, here's Ross Young, USA Rugby's CEO. The two main strands to it, and... The first part of the process was focused on exactly that is 
what can we do that gives us that point of difference from you know a sporting event perspective and you, know, you remember you were there in san francisco and we had a slight taste of it with you know iconic u.s sports venue and a and a rugby world cup in a in a major u.s city and it was a buzz it was great the event itself and you know the operational delivery would was fantastic and i think the spectator stroke consumer experience was awesome and so what we try to do at the start was stay away from the emotions and focus on the infrastructure focus on world-class venues in the in the biggest sports media market in the world and that was the base of building the cases can we deliver it there were would have been previous difficulties i suppose with utilizing a lot of the nfl venues because they're very narrow but certainly from the men's perspective following the soccer world cup and having you know variations and amendations made to those venues to incorporate fifa size regulation pitches ensure that we can also fit rugby pitches in there so it was creating this mega event if you like with a buzz behind it the second phase was really what does the potential of the game have how can this be a catalyst for it and how can we put plans in place to get proper sustainable growth around the men's and women's game in the US. So just, I mean, you, you mentioned other uh, World Cups there. Obviously, there was a, a football World Cup in the US. Uh, I'm wondering if we'll get our Diana Ross moment with, uh, <laughs> with the kick at, kick at goal be, uh, before everything starts off in the opening ceremony. Um, you mentioned there as well the, the Sevens World Cup that was in San Francisco, obviously held uh, at the AT&T, uh, a well-known baseball uh, ground there and you mentioned the other venues but one of the things that stood out in 2018 was that it was almost a bit of a salvage job because people had spent out with their means and obviously you came into the union when USA Rugby was in in a bit of dire straits and there was a lot of writing that needed to be done there were a lot of a lot of work that had to be undone uh, this time round uh, how, how can we ensure that USA Rugby washes its face and that everyone comes out trumps the huge difference is in this is we're entering into this process for it to be a legitimate partnership. So 2015 was done under what you could call the old fashioned bidding process, sorry, 2018 was whereby, you know, there were a number of obligations pushed on the host union and a huge amount of risk that sat with the host around the only real means of revenue generating was around ticket revenue. The process has morphed between and when we started the very traditional process into to do it in a more partnership-led approach, you know, part of those discussions were really driven by the fact that in the US, because neither FIFA nor the IOC have been able to do it either, is you won't get federal government sign-off and support around cash and, and supporting an event like this. Yes, you've got great support from local cities and sports commissions, but that world rugby structure was really reliant on underlying guarantees and governmental guarantees around some of the finances. Um, you know, there was a variation of that in Japan and that went, well, if we were going to make this a success, it had to have everything back in the boiling pot, if you like, and, and see how what was going to be the most effective way to deliver what I'm convinced will be shining star, if you like, of how to move forward and, and raise the bar, certainly for the men's and women's events in, in 31 and 33 as i mentioned at the top uh when i spoke to you in 2018 out of the the sevens world cup it was a bit of a a rocky time for for usa rugby um it's not been straightforward since then but i was just wondering if you could give us a sense of 
what the state of the union is, uh, where where rugby is presently? Now, listen, I think it's a great question, and, and you're right. You know, the warning signs were there around 2018. It's a complex environment. It's not straightforward. We'd gone through a situation where there'd been a failed start of the first pro league, and now we're in a situation where the MLR started. We have a women's Premier League that's been running for a few years now that, you know, that, that's establishing itself. We've got 20 odd of our women playing in the Allianz Premiership. COVID it hit us more than anything else. As you say, we were weakened. We were struggling cash-wise. We cleaned out a number of things ready to grow. And a lot of our back end in the old structure of USA Rugby was is, is funded by the support of membership. And membership is about playing the game. And the exact point at it that COVID hit was at the end of a membership cycle. And nobody you know, no, nobody paid their dues because they weren't paying. We had no cash and had to go into a form of administration, which, you know, was painful. We've got the training wheels on the bike that's wobbling around. We use this process and hopefully that doesn't take the whole nine, 10 years, but the, the training wheels come off. These events happen. It's more than just hosting the event. And, and this, you know, I think really gives us the opportunity to, to, to get rugby towards mainstream status in the US, which will, you know, I certainly feel, and I know the rest of the USA rugby board feel and, and Alan and world rugby feel that that, that will have a, a huge knock on benefit to, to the game worldwide. Just quickly, how close was USA rugby to going to the wall completely? And it scares me. <laughs> you even have to think about it. It was, it was tight. I mean, it, it's, it could have gone either way. It, it was that close. I think so we were fortunate that the US OPC and World Rugby, you know, we'd kept them involved. I think having the support of both large organisations that stood side by side with us as we, as we managed our way through it. And we even talked about it at one point with them was, might it have been easier just to blow everything up completely and, and, and restart from scratch? You, know, you talked about sleepless nights at the start of our chat. There were plenty of them during that period. I think an interesting offshoot of this is, uh, you know, the strengthening and sort of rebirth of of USA rugby. There's obviously a Rugby World Cup 2023 qualification coming up. It's feasible that USA men could not be at the next Rugby World Cup. So whilst we look ahead to uh, awardings of, of future Rugby World Cups in the United States... What would it mean for the US now if they didn't qualify for 2023? You're, you're killing me. You're killing me. Um, talking about sleepless nights, uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, we're confident that we'll get through sure. these next yeah. qualifiers. And, you know, God forbid, even if we have to go into a repechage beyond that. But, the, you know, we are nervous because we've all been through a hell of a period over the last couple of years. And, we are slightly nervous because Chile have been playing and training together virtually as a club team for two years, as the majority of the Uruguay team was. And we haven't played that many games and we certainly haven't played with the same teams, with the same team structure, if you like. So we're going into this, hopefully with full strength on paper, then we can look forward to to France next year. But, you know, it's not going to be easy, but, yeah, it, it just it's so important for us on so many fronts to, to be in France and I'm, I'm confident that, that we will get there somehow so hopefully in July 
So according to USA Rugby CEO Ross Young, the country and governing body is ready to host the World Cup. But hanging over all of this is the very real possibility that the USA men's side might not even qualify for the next Rugby World Cup in France. They have a huge pair of qualifiers coming up against Chile. Head coach Gary Gold admits that World Cup qualification is crucially important. Um, let's put it this way. From our point of view, there's a lot riding on it. There's a huge amount that's riding on it right now. Um, mainly because uh, the sooner we can qualify, if we are able to qualify, the sooner we can qualify, the sooner we can start um, actually arranging more fixtures and and planning um, our, our, our runway to, to Rugby World Cup. You know, the longer that we take to not qualify and having to then accommodate having to play more qualification competitions or repechages or whatever the case may be, obviously that delays us being able to spend time together in progress. So it's a bit of a, it's a, it's, it's a difficult situation from that point of view. So, so yes, in answer to your question, it's critically important for us. In terms of playing quality sides then, what's the dream balance for USA Rugby to help you progress? Because we've seen you lose by over 100 points to New Zealand. It's a, it's a great question. I, I definitely do not want to be playing teams of that calibre out of the Reg 9 window without our players, which is what happened last year. I mean, that is an abomination from our point of view. And um, you're not personally, this is a personal opinion, you're not going to sell me on a commercial story on something like that. I'm not sure that that does anybody any good, you know, an opportunity or a game like that, you know. So I, I didn't see any good in it. Um, uh, and if we had made millions and millions of dollars out of it, um, maybe that could have shut me up, but we didn't. And so, you know, that's not that's not at all what we're talking about. The first thing that we need, Alice, and if you see it as a stage program, the first thing that you need as a so-called tier two country or in my, in my specific selfish cases, the USA is, First thing we need is we need regular game time. We need regular time in camp together. We need regular time to build our cohesion. We need time to be able to work together, formulate a plan, and be able to work hard at getting that plan to improve. So we we don't even have time in camp together. That's the first thing. Then the next thing we need right now is we need regular fixtures. And we just need regular fixtures. We need to be having, hopefully, like in the region of about a dozen fixtures a year. That's ideally what we need. We're not going to get that. But if you're asking me what the perfect world is, that's the situation. And, you know, I mean, since Rugby World Cup, we have not had one preparation week. Every single time we've assembled has been on a Sunday night before the beginning of a game that weekend. So if we were to be able to have some form of preparation time before and and, and be able to formulate, formulate ourselves, formulate our plan, formulate our cohesion, then be able to get into a situation where we play regular games like we did in 2018, it was off the back of that that we could then go into the summer and we could play Russia and do really well against Russia, go up to Canada and do really well against Canada and then play Scotland in, in America and, and be able to beat them or at least just play really well and be competitive. And that's really what we want to get to. It's not rocket science out there. We just, we just need to be playing more regularly. That's really what we need. Well, the 2023 World Cup qualification for the men's side will be a key step on their path to building for a World Cup on home soil. And clearly, regular game time is also something the side needs. As for America's women's side, they will be at this year's Rugby World Cup in New Zealand. Kate Zachary is their captain and explains to me where women's rugby is in the United States at the moment. Women's rugby is still growing in the US. We Obviously, we have it 
in some high schools, we have it in some universities, we have the Women's Premier League or the WPL, um, but there's, it's still, there's so much room to grow. And granted, we have lots of sports to compete for. It's there, the interest is there. It's just continuing to find the avenues to invest in it um, and just make it, even if it's not profitable, just make it that interest level and getting it into more schools. Because if you can get into the schools, that's kind of what feeds into your Premier League, which creates something more symbiotic to the Allianz, right? Um, and then ideally builds into your national teams as well. So it's one of those, it's there, we just have to keep growing it. What's driven the little exodus of uh, players from the US coming to the UK? Initially, it it was at first just COVID an opportunity to play. Um, you know, last year when a very, very small group of us came. Um, but coming back, I think you could see a noticeable difference. One, we played rugby, but you could also argue we just played more rugby. The season runs for 10 months versus three months. The WPL is only a three-month um, campaign. And then you also then mix in the the differences because you've got various international athletes, you've got various age grade English athletes as well. So you've also got just such diversity, I think, to the rugby here as well, which is what kind of helps hone in on different elements of your game. Whereas in the US, because we're still growing that lower level, you're getting players who only picked it up two, three years ago, all competing at the same level now. And so we're all still learning it together. Whereas I think when you come back over here, you've got players who have now played for anywhere from two years to 10 years playing for 10 months. And so that that length of growth and investment over the season is I think what makes the biggest difference and what was the big draw for more of our players returning this year. And can you give me a sense of how well resourced the USA's women's side is at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's in comparison, especially to like in England, for instance, which I can just speak to knowing that I've been here now and seen their setup. So yeah, they get together a lot more regularly um, if they can. I think with the Allianz, those players inadvertently end up together. You've got a handful of players at, at different programs together, so they're training alongside themselves. So you have that contact as well. Whereas, you know, we're Rob and the coaching staff and, and what we can are doing the best they can with providing opportunities. So, you know, he's been back in America doing weekend trips, bringing players into Denver, you know, two or three players at a time trying to get contact time with them we're trying to do the best we can with one overcoming a big country two overcoming limited resources last year not so much this year there's been a big push to create as many small touch points throughout the year which mimics i think something that england's kind of done and and new zealand's been able to obviously have a lot more bigger touch points since they haven't been able to leave the country um but so we're trying to mimic those those minor touch points so when we come together to the big picture each individual is on a very similar level, similar knowledge point. It's just now that cohesive nature at the end of the day. Right. Okay. And and what about turning minor touch points into major touch points? Yeah, for us, the next, um, gosh, what is it? Six months till the World Cup. Um, we will have a couple of big campaigns. So you know, we just announced the Pack 4 which will be three weeks in New Zealand, um, right off the bounce from a majority of us finishing in the Allianz. So all 20 players here will be finishing anywhere from this weekend till June 4th, depending on their outcomes. Um, so there'll be a little bit of rest, things like that, but we'll bounce right into pack four, which will be great coming off you know, the high of Allianz and, and kind of still being so active. The WPL will also be finishing about then. So the nice part is, is both sides of the English group and the U S group will both be coming off as high. We'll bounce right into pack four, have a few weeks there have a couple of weeks off and then we will have a nice long buildup. This will be kind of the next big 
um, gathering of the team. So between pack four and camp in the fall, um, that will be where we kind of bring it all together finally again. So what about the Home World Cup? Geographically, a big challenge of hosting a tournament in a country the size of the United States is ensuring it remains accessible to the fans. USA Rugby CEO Ross Young explains some of the ideas for how the tournament will work and where games might take place. Everywhere and anywhere. Um, when we were doing our due diligence at the start, we put out expressions of interest for cities and venues. And we had over 50 responses, all the major cities, all the major NFL venues, the MLS venues, you know, and some collegiate venues, which a lot of the collegiate venues are bigger um, and more modern venues than, than the NFL themselves. So the final documents were submitted to World Rugby included, I think it's 25 cities and 28 venues across both 31 and 33 with a mixture of of MLS and, and NFL venues. So the strategy is really to, to make it wide reaching, to hit the big cities, to hit those fantastic iconic venues like, uh, you know, Dallas, et cetera, which is, you know, the Atlantas of this world, New York's it's, you know, that, that, that's the underpinning of what we're doing is we're going to do this. We'll do it properly. And it's always interesting. When you go through these processes. Oh, you know, you get the whole, they say as well, that's fine maybe for the semis and finals, but you know, how are you going to fill them for the smaller games? And to me, it, it, this is about the building of the major, you know, the, the major event feel around around a Rugby World Cup. And it, it's happened before, it's happened in Japan, it, you know, virtually every country that I've been involved with the World Cup, you get a buy-in to be part of that event. And as long as you, you make sure you get your pricing points correct and make you know, ticket pricing accessible for everyone, you can you can certainly get the buy-in for those bigger venues with, with those smaller games. I suppose there's two follow-ons from that, Ross. Is, is The first one is, for the Men's World Cup, the US is an enormous country. So so I was wondering, for the Men's World Cup, what the what the thought process was that, whether there'll be travel partners coming in, whether there's, there's thought about joining up where matches will be so that it might be more accessible. And for the women's tournament, obviously we've got a Women's World Cup coming up in New Zealand and everything's very concentrated in one area. What's the thought process with venues for the women's event as well? Yeah, if we take the men's ones first, we've looked at all sorts of options, 24 teams, rounds of 16, different models. And there are two ways you can do it, I think, to maximise. And we want to apply this for both the men's and the women's. You know, they are going to be slightly different, but we want to get as near to equity as we can with them. Is It's either having regional pools, which I don't know if a few people listening will remember 2003. We, we did that then in Australia with the size and scale of Australia. So... We've looked at that. We've also looked at something a, a little bit different, which is almost moving the tournament around the country. As you said, it's a big country with lots of facilities. You know, do you start in the northwest? Do you move down to the to sorry the the north uh, the southwest, cross to the southeast, finish in the northeast? Do you go the other way around? Where you you almost create these huge hubs with everything going on in one slightly bigger area, but not nationwide to start with and drive it so we've submitted we've submitted all of those um and the advantage is being this far distance out 11 years to 33 is we can go through and fine-tune those plans and see what works best in integrating with the other sporting calendars nfl games etc so there's more than one way to skin the cat if you like and and again that's partly that that is an the advantage of of a big country is you do have more scope. 
Uh, and on the women's the women's tournament, Sim- similar thing is we've you know we want to make sure it is nationwide. You know, you look at the impact that hosting a women's World Cup you know had in the US. They, they won it. The women's followed the men's. The, the, there are lots of synergies between where soccer, if you like, has uh, you know has grown in, in towards being accepted as a mainstream sport on the back of initially hosting a men's World Cup and then following with the the, the women winning a World Cup on their host territory and you know that underpinning if you like of what we're doing from an operational perspective is building out a proper strategic growth plan that World Rugby is also buying into that allows us to build this during the the next you know nine eleven years um, towards the two events. Cheeky question here, but do do you have a preference for where a final would be? <laughs> Um, we want to keep it. Uh, we want to keep it competitive and see what we can offer, if you like, the the fan and the spectator as an overall experience of where it would be. But you know, ultimately, I think you know to to have the biggest impact, it's it's going to be in one of the bigger cities. I would I would uh, I would hazard a guess. That was USA Rugby CEO Ross Young with some very interesting details for how the World Cup might work. He wouldn't be drawn on where the final is going to take place, although our understanding is that New York is the leading contender. Steve Lewis is the director of rugby for Rugby New York and the MLR. He says that New York has to be considered as a host venue. Absolutely. So obviously the New York metropolitan area right, has to be a venue. You know, I believe there's 25 or 28 cities in the mix at the moment. Um, I would imagine, you know, obviously the group stuff will be regionalised, one would imagine, but the Northeast has got to have it. 45% of American rugby players live between Boston and DC. So, you know, Boston, New York, Philly, that Eastern corridor. So there's massive uh, focus and concentration here. So I would imagine we'll, we'll definitely get games. New York uh, or New Jersey, this area will definitely get uh, games, hopefully significant games as well towards the back end of the tournament. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a bun fight and um, it'll be an interesting one. Okay, so you've got two Rugby World Cups coming to the United States. How do you capitalise on that in an enormous sporting market like New York? Yeah, so it's um, the, the plans are somewhat opaque at the moment, right? When you hear figures of World Rugby are putting in 50 million over nine years, 40 million over 10 years, and it's going into grassroots rugby. So what does that actually mean? You know, who's operating, who's um, dispensing the goods, right? And there's another bun fight, everyone asking for resources. The second part, from our perspective in New York, Rugby New York, is how do we dovetail with that? We, we already have our own initiatives. We, I, I am actually spending quite a bit of time high school rugby and sort of reimagining our talent ID player pathway, right? What does an academy look like? The good thing, what's happened with the advent of MLR in the last couple of years is you actually now have a putative pathway, right? So a kid could learn rugby at high school, get a scholarship to college, and get, then get a pro contract out of college into mid, Major League Rugby. The reality is the pathway is patchwork. It is sporadic, very spotty, some good colleges in good parts of the country. The connections tend to be interpersonal and coaches. It's not clearly defined as yet, but there is now, you can sort of see something emerging, right, from the ashes. And if we, if we, can, if we can define it and make it clear, delineate it clearly, then good things can happen. Okay, Steve. Big one, this, but what do you think a men's and women's rugby world cup could mean for the sport in the United States? Well, I think I think it's absolutely seismic. 
those two items we've touched on, we've touched on corporate credibility, right? If you bring the World Cup here, big companies start taking the sport seriously, right? You're looking, that's, that's the first part, legitimacy, credibility in the American sporting consciousness. The second part that's really, really, really important is not the announcement on Thursday, but it's the investment that flows in afterwards. So those are the two key things. And then there's the aspirational piece, right? It's a great event in and of itself. But, you know, we, we've now got a story to tell for the next 10 years. The World Cup is coming. It, it couldn't, that's a much, much easier sell than, oh, by the way, there's this big sporting event that they hold in Europe or South Africa or Australia. So it, it's just it's beyond belief exciting, full of potential. We just got to exploit it fully. The US isn't a, a country, it's a continent. Like there, there's fiefdoms, there's geography, there's amateur sport, there's politics. But this could be the call at the moment we can coalesce and move forward. So I am actually positive and hopeful. Steve Lewis, Director of Rugby at Rugby New York. I think it's safe to say we'll be seeing rugby in and around the New York area when it comes to the World Cups. But Steve touched upon something important at the end there. The pathways and development of rugby union in North America. It's a topic which came up with a lot of people we spoke to for this podcast. USA Eagles men's head coach Gary Gold had this to say on the matter. Give you an easy answer with that, Al. It's a very similar situation to what happened in the in the in, in England in the early 2000s with the advent of the academy system. That's really what needs to happen. So if you remember, it was initially lottery funded. I was at London Irish at the time, but I know that all the 12 premiership clubs at the time had to buy in to the formation of an academy. Um, and it was it was ma- managed and monitored by the RFU. That's what it takes. You know? So we've got 14 professional clubs that might even increase to more. Uh, USA Rugby have got talent ID pathway camps right now this weekend. We ran one in Seattle. Um, there are 12 around the country, including Hawaii. That will come and culminate in about 30 odd boys and then 30 odd girls being selected to come to a national academy, which is going to go over a couple of months in August. And we just need the buy-in from our clubs to run those academies as well. And those 15, 16, 17 year olds that are identified right here today, as you say, will be eligible by, by um, 2028, 2029, 2030, 2031. Does it feel you have to pioneer a lot of this? Uh, because it's a very different model to the traditional US sports. Perhaps, but you know, it's a different sport and the model's different. It's true what you say about the other sports and the other models, but when you have a look at the amount of kids who play high school football and you have a look at how many of those go in the draft, it is significantly less than 1% of every single, significantly less than every single child playing high school football in America at his high school. So the issue is that is an old, that is a model that works in American sports and quite successfully because of the volume of the sport and the volume of the amount of people that are playing. But if you're a keen football, American football player, and you finish college and you don't make it, you don't play. That's it. Your football career is over. Whereas with rugby, we don't have that. Our culture is completely different. So if you come out high school and you go to college, you can play rugby. If you finish college, you join a club and still continue to play rugby. And, you know, we, we, will, we will continue to support that. Um, and, and then with the advent of the, the academy system, as I explained it to you, then, you know, we can continue to develop players. Clearly, as Gary Gold was explaining, the pathway for rugby union in America is very different compared with traditional U.S. sports. 
In sports such as basketball and American football, athletes progress from high school to college and then into the pros. With rugby, it's a little bit different. Jack Clark is head coach of varsity rugby at Berkeley University. He explained how the pathway works and also gave me an insight into the role of the college system in American rugby. If you're a rugby athlete at any of our best rugby universities, um, you're trying to have a student athlete experience. You know, a lot of guys, they, they want to they want to go into law or medicine or business, and um, they want to go have substantial careers where they're going to make a lot of money. And at the same time, we have players that want to play in the Olympic Games. Um, we, we always have a small group of players that want to continue to play. Um, that's harder in America than it used to be. It used to be there were club teams everywhere, and you could, you know, you could show up and and say, "I want to." You know, I'm still going to be studying for my master's, or I, you know, I'm 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 employed now with my career job, but I still want to play rugby and join a club. Those clubs are almost all gone. We don't have too many club rugby teams left, really. Um, certainly not any anything that's significant. We have this semi-professional major league rugby thing, <laughs> and then we have, uh, you know a very weak club system um, and, and it's declining and it's in decline. And then we have our collegiate rugby and our high school rugby. So the goal, the goal has been in, in, in many cases twofold. You know what I mean? One, give legitimate collegiate athletic experiences that can help an individual, you know, later on in their families and their communities and in their workplaces. And then at the same time, if you have somebody that actually projects to the next level of play, try to service those ambitions. Okay, and this is a bit of a delicate one, Jack, but we've been hearing a bit of chat about a rupture between college sports and the, the American Union. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Well, the, so the national governing body, USA Rugby, um, it, it's no you know, it's no secret. They, they, they've gone bankrupt. Uh, they're in their restructuring phase right now uh, as a bankrupt entity, and they're they're trying to emerge and get on their feet and and begin to service the membership. But the decline that got them into bankruptcy meant that they they quit doing the job that national governing bodies do, and 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 uh, I think they they started to neglect a lot of their responsibilities, and one of those responsibilities was collegiate athletics and. Uh, you know, our collegiate rugby teams. And we have some potential there, especially on the women's side, because we have federal law around um, Title IX, which is a gender equity law. And we, we have a lot of opportunities for female athletes. And there's a chance that rugby could, could really grow in the collegiate sector. Um, that would mean scholarships for, for female athletes. That would mean coaching jobs. Uh, that would mean that we really bring women's collegiate rugby, you know, into where all the resources are. I think USA Rugby's done a poor job of recognizing all that. And, and the end result has been they've, they've kind of divested themselves from having any role really in collegiate athletics. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that there is this great divide, but it's there and it's out of neglect. I mean, it, at the point where USA Rugby could, could show up and provide some thought leadership, um, to the community and, and say, here's what we see, here's where we think the next steps are, here are the resources we can bring to bear. So can the Rugby World Cups coming change the rift with the union? Um, well, that's the right thing to try to do for sure, right? I mean, 
Um, you know, I, I'm not a great believer in multiple, multiple national governing bodies. That all seems redundant to me. That all seems really inefficient. And, uh, and if anything, we need great efficiencies in, in the administration of our rugby. So I would hope that at some point in the future, there's one strong national governing body and a division of that can run high school and scholastic and youth rugby and another division of that could run collegiate rugby and obviously there'd be a high performance end that could run the national teams and you know you, you would hope that you know hq would mean something and there'd be a bunch of good people there i mean they're not going to have 100 helicopters and you know you know a bank vault right um but but they're going to have good people with good ideas and the membership will always rally a lot of people are volunteers they're, they they do what they do out of you know, out of a love for the game. Right, okay. Are you optimistic about the future of rugby in the United States? Um, yes, of course, we have to be, right? I, I mean, but let, let's, you know, we, we, need, we need serious people at the table, right? Because, I mean, if I hear another person say we're the fastest growing sport and all, you know, it's like, what are you guys talking about? I mean, first of all, no sports are growing. There's less participation in all sports across the board. Um, and, and we're not growing. So why, you know, it, it doesn't do us any good to have this, this kind of false rugby's getting ready to, you know, really go public in America, when in reality, we have a lot of work to do over a lot of years to kind of build that up. I, I think we, we need serious people to have a real good look at this. I mean, if we if we could make rugby a high school sport in 35 of our states, I think we'd look ahead and we, we, we would have a million boys and girls playing the sport at the high school level in two, three years. <laughs> it would happen that quick. It would be fundamental, and I, but no one's working on it, right? So when you say, are you optimistic? I'm going, well, yeah, I'm, the minute some serious people show up and actually start working on some serious stuff is the point where we can all get really optimistic because it'll happen. We'll have, we'll have a hell of a good national team in, in four years' time. So uh, what's the untapped potential of college rugby? It, it's how close can we get to the center of the resources on each campus? So on our campus, we're in the center of the resources. So when you know international coaches from around the world that are coaching national teams stop by for a visit, uh, they walk down to the High Performance Center and they say, there's not another rugby team in the world training something as good as this, right? So if we can get closer to the center, then what universities have is they've got tens of thousands of males and females. This is where the people are. This is where the athletes are. This is where the facilities are. Um, it makes sense that we understand that and we make it part of, 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 of the plan. Now, might there be a kid that gets out of high school and, um, wants to be an auto mechanic and he's a hell of a good rugby player and he goes and plays in the MLR. I hope there's still a path. There has to be a path for everybody that has the talent to reach the national team, but there's just too many athletes at the collegiate level for us to give up on. Okay, Jack. And finally, is there anything else you'd want to say about the state of the game in the United States? Well, I mean, you know, the thoughts that come to mind are you're exactly right. Talking about, you know, youth and collegiate, I, you know, <laughs> Right now in America, there's there's some 12 year old that's going to be a 21 year old winger, you know, when we host the World Cup, right? I mean, so we we ought to be thinking about, you know, where 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 is that 12 year old, and you know, where are those high schoolers that are 15 years of age that'll be 24 in 
in, in you know in 31 and 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 just do the math all the way down i mean you know if you're already out of college you're not playing in that rugby world cup right so uh it's important for us to put our bets in the right place. Um, that, that'll be critically in, important. And, and I hope that, you know, the Rugby World Cup will, will truly leave a legacy. And it won't be easy, though, right? I mean, we'll, what we probably didn't say in the bid package was is that when the previous Rugby World Cups were played, the results weren't in our newspapers in our major cities, right? I mean, it's like, uh, you know, let's, let's not skip over that point that – the previous Rugby World Cups were not reported um, on our on our news broadcasts for sports and or our, our daily uh, newspapers and the sports pages. So we have a lot to do around media just to be able to capitalize on on the prospect of hosting and then actually hosting and then the legacy after hosting. If this is about we make a little bit of money, that that's that's not that exciting for me personally. If this is about we, we can use this opportunity to improve referees and coaching development and, uh, you know, our competitions at the, at the scholastic and collegiate level. If we can create something uh, lasting, you know, that, that we'll, we'll, we'll be able to really um, perpetually propel USA Rugby, then that's really an exciting moment we have today. Six nations and six amazing chances to win an unforgettable adventure for you and five mates in a Six Nations European host city of your choice. To take part, enter online now at greenking.co.uk slash rugby. Six nations, six mates and six international rugby getaways worth £3,000. Scrum down and sign up to win at greenking.co.uk slash rugby and watch all the Six Nations action live at your local Green King pub. Terms and conditions apply 18 plus drinkaware.co.uk. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Rock Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Funding Circle. Funding Circle has been supporting small businesses since 2010, so they know that like rugby, running a business takes hard work, drive and a good team supporting you. They've helped Saracens and England hooker Jamie George grow his business. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how. If you're looking to improve different parts of your business or hire talent with extra know-how, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Funding Circle business finance that backs you. That was Jack Clark from Berkeley University. Hoping that a rift between the collegiate game and the governing body can be healed as the country builds towards the World Cups in 2031 and 2033. From what he told me, the college game clearly has a role to play. But let's get back to focusing on the players. 
Here's Kate Zachary again on how the women's game can capitalise on a home World Cup. It's a question that we've talked a lot at various levels. You know, I'm on a council call as well as our players association. So we do talk about it a lot. And I think at the starting point, it's finding the ability to create the investment at that lower level. But alongside that, it has to also come not just the players, but we need the coaches and the referees. And I think that's something we often forget about too, because you need the people to shape the players. If you bring the players to the field, you need someone who can adequately coach them and ref them week in and week out because that molds the greater picture, the greater environment of rugby and best prepares them you know, for the 20 world, the 2031 and 2033 World Cups. It kind of has to start there, players and the support staff. And we now have the Olympic Games, home World Cup to look forward to for the women. Are there now no excuses for attracting athletes to this sport? We've definitely set ourselves out with a standard that we have to follow, right? Being a country is going to host, you need to also be ready to come in and, and be one of the strongest teams. It, it's important, I think, to have that. So we've definitely, we've set the bar high. There's opportunity to meet the bar. It'll just be getting all the stuff right in the bottom. And 2033 is a long way off for someone who's now <laughs> a bit older. But, um, you know, I've got my, my eyes set on this one and the next one. And then hopefully by that point, we have built on the foundation because I don't want to neglect the foundation that started back in the 80s and the 90s with the initial World Cup. Those women were in a genuine pay-to-play international model. Over the last few years, or the last 20, 30 years, we finally got to a place where we do at least get stipends and we do have more resources and time together. But ideally over the course of these next probably five years, it builds into a contractual team. And that's going to be how we remain competitive with the other teams. Like that has to kind of be the next step, I think in the next couple of years. And then that brings in your current uni kids, your, your Emily Henrich and Cassidy Bargell and some of those other kids who are 18, 19, 20, like they all project to be in that world cup. So in the next two years that we have to invest in them, we have to provide them the opportunity not to have to work and not to have to pay for things. That was Kate Zachary looking to build foundations for future women's rugby players to succeed when the World Cup comes around in 2033. But what about the professional domestic game in North America? So far, we've heard from the governing body, national sides and the college game. But the MLR, Major League Rugby, is trying to grow following its foundation in 2017. Ryan Matthias, who plays for San Diego Legion and recently retired from the men's national side, explains what it's like being a professional in America as an American. I would probably equate it to similar, to, similarly to the um, to Mitre 10. You know, some guys making between 50 and 60 and, you know, those, those guys are the kind of the outliers. I would say the regular wage is below that. So obviously being an American rugby player, you got to have a job outside of, out of your rugby. Um, it's just what it is. I mean, it's a year five league and just like anything in the, you know, inception years, the money isn't there. Um, it's getting better. The salary cap has gone up. We, we are attracting larger investors. Um, and I think that's one of the things that these, these um, you know, guys who have, um, you know, been there and done it all, you know, Ma Nanu and, and Chris Robshaw, they, they come in and, you know, they're training and playing and, alongside guys who have a part-time job at home and you know that love and that dedication and that work rate for to come in and still be a professional even when you still have a job outside of it those guys get inspired by by you know um by people who do that so you've got to be a bit of a rugby evangelist right always 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 selling rugby always 
hey, uh, you know, someone's like, oh, what do you do? Well, actually, uh, I play for your San Diego rugby team. What, we have a rugby team? Yes, you do. Let me tell you all about it, how you can get tickets, you know? <laughs> okay, Ryan, and how do you balance that the interest between hunting for Olympic gold medals and growing rugby as a whole in the United States? I know a handful of guys at the moment who play for MLR teams, but they'll come in and they'll do um, – you know, they will play, they'll, they'll go uh, do the high performance camps down at the OTC. So I know that, um, you know, Mike Friday is open to that. And he obviously understands, you know, that he needs to build depth in his squad working towards the Olympics and give kids uh, younger guys, sorry, so to speak, younger guys, you know, a higher level training and, and um, game experience and opportunity. And, and um, obviously with the growth of this league that they want to, they want more teams coming in. I think, there will be plenty of room for younger guys to have space to play. You know, I'm comfortable that our national team programs are working with guys to figure out, okay, well, you know, what's best for this player's development? And, um, you know, is it, you know, going and play a couple games in the MLR, then coming in sevens camp or being at the OTC full time? Uh, it looks like they're doing a good job of being able to provide those space for those young guys to develop. That was Ryan Matthias with the player's perspective on what it's like being a professional rugby union player in North America. Steve Lewis at Rugby New York also gave me an explanation as to where the MLR currently is in its development. Major League Rugby is, is a different beast to the former pro rugby, which I was involved with. Um, that, that was a single entity league, one owner, five teams. This has more legs. And the reason is it's also a single entity league. But you have 13 teams and you actually have 12 owners currently. So you have a wider spread of risk. So if you have one guy throwing his toys out the pram, the whole thing doesn't go away, right? Four years in... Differing experiences in different parts of the country. It is a truly national league. You've got teams in the East Coast, teams in the West Coast, teams in Texas. You've got some terrific, you've got teams that own their own stadium, like, say, Houston. You've got other teams that perhaps New York, ourselves, is our biggest struggle, is, is somewhere to play. Um, you're seeing probably crowds between two to 4,000, which is decent. You're seeing a website, the Rugby Network, which the league owns, where all the content, all the games are free to air. So that's important, particularly when you're trying to evangelize a game. Um, and I think that probably the most important, most important part, which is the product, okay, the quality of the, of the rugby is definitely ticking up a couple of notches um, every year. So, for instance, this year, I mean, look at the players involved. I mean, from our perspective, New York, this, this weekend in Hoboken, we will have three World Cup winning All Blacks playing. So you're seeing, you're seeing an interest from abroad. You're seeing an uptick in the quality. And I think this league has got, uh, got legs. It's here to stay. And in a business sense, where are we with the MLR? Well, I think from that perspective, um, it's the old cliche, how, how do you make a small fortune in sports start with a big one, right? But um, you've got the level that, or the type of owner coming in now, the influx of money is, is, is significantly different. We all know this league isn't going to make a profit for three to five years. Um, you know, the gates are fine. Merch is what it is. Sponsorship and media rights or the monetization of media rights are what it's all about. And then the proof of the pudding is we've got to grow it in the next three to five years. And then what is the value? Um, you have already seen some initial interest from the hedge fund guys who've been buying up other parts of the sport. So I, I think there's, um, I think what you have to understand, the, the sports market in the US is so so big, so massive, you just need a tiny sliver. And so if this thing holds on, and then allied to what we're going to discuss later, the World Cup, then there is, a, I think, a realistic, pragmatic runway here over a 10-year period. 
it's not no one's getting rich in the next three to five years. The dream scenario is in terms of the American sporting consciousness is success. So to a great extent, you know, in many ways, the game is not going to change here until you get one of these miracle nice moments, right? Where, where the US national team knocks off a tier one country, hopefully not Scotland again, but knocks a tier one country off. Or, and I've always felt this is actually the way, to, way forward is the seventh team medal at the Olympics. The Olympics are, are bigger in the American sporting psyche than perhaps other countries. So either success, um, a successful national team, men and women, or seventh team meddling men or women. And in many respects, our best chances of success are the women. The women's game here could really explode. That was Steve Lewis giving us an administrator's point of view. But let's hear from former England captain Chris Robshaw, who plays for San Diego Legion. He told me about the potential of the US game. Even the difference from this year to last year as well is, is so much more improved. And I think the, the biggest thing about this league at the moment is it's only five years old. It is growing, it is improving. And speaking to some of the guys who were here from day one who were using pop-up buildings for their gyms and using kind of LA fitnesses as their kind of fitness centres and all that kind of stuff, to having kind of your own HQ, your own foundations, your own kind of setup is, is going a long way. And what I, what I say to them, because a lot of the guys always ask me about how does this compare to England and Europe and because you look at our leagues back there and, and we think we, we've got things going pretty well. Uh, and we and we do, but I say look, we've we've had our professional league now almost thirty years, but we're still working out little kinks here and there, and we're still adding improvements, and we're still trying to evolve. And there are still some grounds which sell out every week, and there are some grounds which don't. And I think for a product which has been five years in the making, is it's a good product. I mean, you look at the rugby, the standard look, it's not what it is back home, but it's competitive. It's it's a good product playing. Um, and there are opportunities there. And I think for for the league as well, it, it is going to take a little bit of time to continue to grow year on year. Um, but every year there, there are things which do come in, which do add add value, whether it's different teams coming in, whether it's different stadiums. Like next year, San Diego Legion, we moved to a, uh, the university, as I'm sure you're aware, university sport is huge here. And... Uh, the San Diego University we play has just built a 30,000-seater kind of multi-purpose stadium, which would be up there with Premier League football teams back home. So we're going to be moving into, into that stadium next year. Right. Where can the most immediate progress come from and how big is the potential for rugby in the US then? Um, well, I think, yeah, the, the crowds are something. But I also say that when international games are generally played in here when the All Blacks have played Ireland, where the, I know Quinns have been over here and played the States as well in a, a smaller stadium as well. Games are sold out. So I think there is an appetite for, for international sport as well. From, from my point of view, I think what Americans do is, I don't understand the sport that much, to be honest, a lot of American sports, but they know how to sell entertainment. They know how to build stuff up and, and sell it to the people who might not know much about the sport at all. And they know how to get bums on seats when things are going well. And I think their ability to have that product of rugby, because I sometimes feel back in the UK, back in other places, we're so stuck in rugby values and rugby, the, the old generations and stuff, we can't be seen to deviate too much away from the product we have. Whereas I feel with the Americans coming into this World Cup, I think we'll have the rugby on pitch, 
but I think very much I'll make that fan engagement, that kind of excitement around the grounds, all that kind of stuff, and take that to another level. So I think that's where they can really add their value to the game. Do you have to be a bit of a salesman in the build-up to the Rubble World Cups in the US? In, in, in all honesty, you are. And it, it is, it's kind of like that because a lot of people here know rugby or they know old rugby, but they don't really quite understand it. They know, but it's just, yes, it's taking it to that next level now and getting, so how do you go from 2000 to when we move into a 30,000 seat to stadium next year? I think LA play in a, the Coliseum, which is probably about 80,000 and they probably get about 2000 people in there. And one of the guys described the kind of the, the setup of it here. He said, it's almost like a startup where everyone's doing a couple more jobs and what their role is. The biggest thing I, I think to, to help rugby in America is, is starting it at the younger levels. Because at the moment, a lot of players in, in my team and other teams, they pick rugby up as a second sport. They might have done wrestling or American football or basketball and then thought they're probably not going to make the level they want to go to. It's how do you get more clubs? I've seen it. I've been to the high schools. We've been to some of the, the amateur clubs in the local area. And they do. They, ha they have kids teams. Uh, the Legion do skills clinics and you get kind of 30, 40 kids coming. It is there and it is growing. So they're, they're rug rugby is around and there is kind of excitement about it and people do want to make it happen. It's just getting more people aware of what is actually involved rather than just knowing someone who knows someone that plays. Do you think that it would help if kids could see success in the MLR up close more often? Yes, yeah, I do. I think anyway, you can get a buzz and you get that kind of connection to a team. And I mean, over here, you're, you're competing with other, other sports, which is a hard thing for, for TV time, for coverage, for all that kind of stuff. For, I mean, we're lucky back home with BT show, what, six games a weekend or whatever it is. So the coverage, but even back when I first started, I think you were on TV once every six weeks. I remember guys going to get haircuts because it was so special to be on TV for that weekend. Whereas now you're on TV every weekend and it's a little bit different. And we're not instantly going to flick a switch and be at that level. But things are, the rugby network's been brilliant to come on and stream all the games. Facilities are, are improving, more teams. We went to the Dallas Stadium. Dallas playing a state-of-the-art baseball stadium, which is, which is fantastic. So things are growing, but it, it is going to take time. There's, there's no denying that. Okay, Chris. Uh what would you like the MLR to achieve in the next couple of years? I think we're, with it all, it just needs to continue taking baby steps. That every year, I think it can look back and say, yes, we are better than we were last year. People want rugby to do well. When you go to places like Seattle, they get 3,000 people. There's a huge sports community there. There's a great buzz around the place. And it gives you a buzz of a player. And, that, and that's what we need. And finally, Chris, is there anything else people should know about? In, in the UK, we always want... We want rugby to be like like football. But is it ever going to be the Premier League? It's probably not, is it? We're going to have a very good product and we're going to sell out 10, 15,000 seaters. The internationals, of course, are always going to be huge. And I think for, for being over here, it's it's having a very good product, being successful, being competitive. I think with like the UK, Australia, New Zealand, all these type of places, if we were to go to another World Cup there, are we getting more people into rugby that don't know about rugby? Probably not. If England is to host it again, of course, it's going to be brilliant. But are, is a big audience going to start playing and stuff? Whereas I think from a world point of view and a global point of view, I think to have a World Cup in, in a new terrain like we did in Japan four years ago, 
like or three years ago like it's going to be in america in nine years i think the audiences and the capacity to bring new audiences into game new new players to start playing is a lot greater than going back to a france or a england and i'm not saying they're not going to be special themselves i just think it's a great opportunity to try and tap into a new audience um to try and get a new generation of players starting to play the game we just heard from former england captain chris robshaw Throughout this podcast, hopefully we've been able to give you an insight into where rugby union is in America. Clearly with two Rugby World Cups on the horizon, it's an incredibly exciting time for the sport, but there are also plenty of challenges ahead. We'll leave the final words of this USA special podcast to Ryan Matthias. He won't be able to compete at the 2031 World Cup, but that hasn't dampened his excitement one bit. Oh, for me, it's all it's all sweet, man. Like I, uh, I actually just announced my retirement from international rugby last week. Um, so I am so excited that I can, I'll, I'll, I, I know that I'm going to be at the 2031 world cup, either a spectator in the stands, just enjoying and having a great time with my family or, you know, maybe be a, an assistant junior manager for the Eagles or, uh, or a water boy or a, a touch judge, or I don't know something, but I'm going to be involved in it in some way, some shape and form. Um, obviously I got nine years to kind of figure that out to find my way to get a free ticket. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just so excited. Cause, uh, I mean, growing up, you know, my father actually took my brother and I to the, uh, 2007 world cup. We got to watch some of the games that were played in Wales. That was just an unbelievable experience for me. That was 16 years old. And that was a defining moment in my life that, you know, I'm going to be a professional rugby player. I'm going to be an Eagle and being able to see that. And, and be able to it's not just on tv you can touch it it's right there you can see it and and um it just does something for you as as a kid to to be able to be in that environment and the buzz and the glow and the sound and you know people you know playing music and the flags and and everyone enjoying each other's company and and then you know seeing that stage and the magnitude you know these players i mean it was uh it was a life-changing experience and i'm excited that um, kids on American soil are going to be able to feel that and see that in person and go, I want to be an Eagle. I, I, that's, I want to be here in 12 years, 15 years. I want to be on this stage. And, uh, and that's going to be the catalyst point for them to go off and trailblaze their rugby career. Thank you for listening to this special podcast on The Ruck from The Times and Sunday Times. Thanks to everyone who gave us their time and expertise, including Ross Young, Steve Lewis, Gary Gold, Jack Clark, Chris Robshaw, Ryan Matthias and Kate Zachary. This podcast was produced and edited by Alfie Reynolds. Thanks for listening to the Ruck podcast. We're delighted to be teaming up with Funding Circle. Funding Circle has been supporting small businesses with access to the finance they need to grow since 2010. They know that like rugby, running a business takes hard work, drive and a good team supporting you. And they're working with England and Saracens hooker Jamie George to help him build his business. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how Jamie is growing his business backed by Funding Circle. If you want to invest in your business and take your team to the next level, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Funding Circle, business finance that backs you. 
The biggest rugby tournament of the year is coming to a Green King pub near you. Watch all the unmissable action live as Europe's top six battle it out for glory in the Six Nations tournament. In and out, in and out, for the line! Leave your rivalries at the door and get their team together to watch the Six Nations. Feel the excitement and the buzz of coming together to enjoy matchday food and drink at your nearest Green King sports pub. Scores in the corner! The Six Nations and Green King. 18 plus, drinkaware.co.uk. 